Good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to continue looking with you at Luke's Gospel. It's been nine months we've been working together on Luke's Gospel now and uh, another couple of months still to go. Can I encourage you to have Luke chapter 20 and verse 20 open? We're going to read through until chapter 21 and verse 4. Think about what it means and how it applies to us. We'll really help you to have your Bible open. And I think there should be time for a question time at the end as well. We had a really interesting sort of 10-minute question time after the 9 o'clock service. So... uh, Perhaps store up questions in your mind and you can ask them at the end if you think they'd be helpful for everybody to hear. Let's pray. We'll ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, do please help us now to understand your word. Thank you so much for giving it to us. Thank you for uh, Luke's gospel and for the ways that it can help us to be more certain about what we learn about Jesus. Uh, Do please fill us with your spirit so we understand what your word says so that we respond rightly, uh, growing in our faith in Christ and our desire to live for him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Has anyone seen the movie The Princess Bride? Yes? No? Really? I I thought every Christian watched The Princess Bride. Um, It's like the sort of youth group special, isn't it, as as a movie? Um, Okay, everyone at 9 o'clock had. They're obviously just an entirely different crowd. (laughs) (laughs) I thought many of you would have watched it. It seems to be a very popular movie among Christians. Uh, Those of you who've uh, watched it will remember that in one part of the movie there's a princess, her name is Buttercup, and uh, she gets kidnapped. Kidnapped by three men. Uh, One, Vizzini, is famous for his intelligence. The second, Fezzik, is famous for his strength. And the third, Inigo Montoya, is famous as a sword fighter. And in order to rescue the princess, the hero, his name is Wesley, Wesley has to defeat all three of the kidnappers... But the interesting thing is, he has to defeat all three of them in their area of expertise. So he has to defeat Inigo Montoya in a sword fight, has to defeat Fezzik in a battle of strength, and has to defeat the Sicilian Mazzini in a battle of wits, the smart man. Has to take on the experts in the area of expertise and win. The story reminds me of a little bit of Luke chapter 20. Uh, Here in Luke 20... As we come into Luke chapter 20 and verse 20, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, Do you remember last week he drove out the merchants from the temple and then the Jewish Jewish religious leaders started started to question him and oppose him and then he told that parable against the Jewish religious leaders. you remember from last week? Well, now in this section, Jesus is approached by a series of experts. First, you get some legal experts, chief priests and law teachers, and they try to trap Jesus in a legal question. Then there are some theological experts, Sadducees. They try to trap trap Jesus in a theological question, and then Jesus has a question of his own. He's pitted against the experts, Jesus, and they're all trying to defeat him, trying to make him look bad, trying ultimately to destroy him. In the first section, the priests and the teachers of the law, they attempt to trap Jesus. They send some spies to ask, ask him a question. The spies kind of flatter Jesus for a while, and then they ask their question, should they pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that is a trap. That's a trap question. It's a trap question because, remember the context, Israel at this stage is being ruled by the Roman Empire. They've been conquered, and they're being oppressed by the Romans. And so if Jesus says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, it's going to lose in popularity with the Jewish people. Why is he giving in to the Roman oppressors? Has he given up on the authority of God and the sovereignty of God? But then on the other hand, if he says, no, they shouldn't pay taxes, 
well, he's advocating rebellion against Rome. And so the religious leaders will have an excuse to hand him over to the Roman governor. It's a clever trap. Seems like it's a, a no-win situation for Jesus. Luke chapter 20 and verse 20, have a look with me. Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they, that's the chief priests and the teachers of the law who recognised that Jesus had spoken the parable against them last week, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and, truth, speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. There's the flattery. Here's the question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In reply, Jesus does something brilliant. He asks them to show him a Roman coin. And he asks whose image is on the coin. The brilliance of this is the fact that the spies can immediately show him a Roman coin. They've got them in their pockets. They're using Roman money. And the fact is, the Jews, they're happy enough to benefit from Rome. Happy enough to use the currency and walk on the roads and bathe in the aqueduct or whatever it is. They're happy enough to use the things of Rome. And so, Jesus says, you want to use the things of Rome, well, you've got to be willing to pay for the things of Rome. Reminds me a little bit of another movie, um, Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Some Jewish rebels are plotting against Rome, and the leader asks, what have the Romans ever done for us? Let's have a look. They take everything we had, and not just from us, from our fathers, and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. You understand, don't labour the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct? Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and the sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads? Well, yeah, obviously yeah. no roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation? Medicine? Huh? Education? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine? Yeah, yeah, that's something we've really missed, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! These people questioning Jesus, they're happy enough to benefit from Rome. Roman coins in their pockets. Coins with Caesar's head on them in their pockets. And so Jesus is able to say, you should pay for what you use. Give back to Rome what is due. But, says Jesus, you've also got to give God what is due. And he's given you everything. So you owe him your wholehearted allegiance and worship and love. Verse 23... He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. 
Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It's genius, isn't it? So clever. And so there's victory number one for Jesus. The, 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 the teachers of the law, the, the priests, the religious, the, the um, legal experts, beaten at their own game. Verse 26. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. All right, that's battle number one. A second, uh, another section of the Jewish leadership, they approached Jesus, and this time we're dealing with the theological experts. Uh, the Sadducees were a very important group in Jerusalem, made up of the high priests and lots of other important religious types. There's something like, something like the theological lecturers at Jerusalem University. Okay, we're thinking kind of theological experts, but like, well, like many theological lecturers in universities, including in Sydney University, the Sadducees didn't believe in a whole heap of things. And relevant for our purposes today, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they asked Jesus a question. It's a theological question. And it's the, 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 what's behind the question is they're trying to make it look stupid to believe in the resurrection. They're trying to make the whole idea of resurrection look ridiculous. The Sadducees tell a story. Uh, it arises from a law in the Old Testament. If a married man dies without children, his widow has to marry his brother. And, and the children of the, the brother and the widow become the heirs of the original guy. It was a way of making sure that families were able to keep their place in the promised land. Well, in the Sadducees' story, a woman ends up marrying seven brothers as one by one they die without children. And as far as the Sadducees are concerned, if there is a resurrection, if that's true, then it leaves a, just a ludicrous situation. A, a, an embarrassing, scandalous situation, an ungodly situation, because in heaven, the woman would have seven husbands. Verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, I'm told that's why they're Sadducees. They're, they're called Sadducees because they say there's no resurrection, so they're sad, you see. Um, <laughs> anyway. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Okay, they're not actually asking whose wife will she be. They're saying, how ridiculous, how ungodly. There's such a thing as a resurrection, it's stupid. Well, Jesus starts off his answer by making one very simple point. This question assumes that things on earth and things in heaven are the same. It assumes a continuity of marriage between earth and heaven. But in a very simple point, Jesus says, things are not the same in heaven as they are on earth. In heaven, Jesus says, people won't die. And so people won't get married in heaven. Verse 34, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. 
But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. You see, the continuity is just not there. The presumption behind the question is a false one. And then in the second part of his answer, Jesus shows from the Bible that people who are dead on earth are still alive to God. Quotes from uh, the book of Exodus, where God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, when God says that to Moses, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years. But God says he is still their God. They're still alive to him. It's a picture that, that to God, people, even dead people on earth, are alive. And it's a foretaste of resurrection. Verse 37. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Okay, the theological experts have attacked Jesus with their theological questions. Once again, victory number two. Victory number two for Jesus. The Sadducees beaten at their own game. Verse 39. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus has answered the questions that were asked of him. Now he has a question of his own. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders, and we've seen this over and ago, over again in Luke's gospel, the disciples are the, th- are the same, they think of the Messiah, the king, the promised king, as being an earthly king. So they're expecting Jesus to come now that he's in Jerusalem to raise up an army, to attack Rome and set up a castle and have an earthly kingdom like David. But Jesus refers to Psalm 110 where God gives a way bigger picture of the Messiah. In in, in Psalm 110, um, God pictures the Messiah as being at his right hand in heaven and all his enemies, heaven and on earth, being put under his feet. It's a way bigger picture. What Jesus does, he, he questions the religious leaders about Psalm 110 because their, their picture of the Messiah is way too small. It's earthbound instead of understanding the, the heavenly aspect of the Messiah. And the way Jesus asks the question, he works with an assumption in that culture. Um, unlike in our culture, it was assumed that the Father has authority over the Son. Unlike in my family, anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, so the, 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 back in those days, the, the, the son was supposed to call the father, sir, or lord, something like that. Bring it back, I say. Um, but <laughs> in Psalm 110, King David calls the Messiah, who's supposed to be his son in, in rabbinic thinking, calls his son lord. And so Jesus says, how can the Messiah be just an ordinary son of David if David calls him lord? if David calls him sir. And the religious leaders have no answer. Verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? Why is he just an earthly king, you know, the the same as David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, 110, The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord, having can he be his son? You see what Jesus is doing? The religious leaders have got way too small a picture of who he is, of who the Messiah is. And Jesus goes on to say it's symptomatic of a wider problem. Their whole religion is earthbound. These religious leaders, their eyes are set on the world. That's why they're taking money from the money changers in, in the temple. It's why they're so worried about popularity that they can't answer Jesus' question from last week. They're, they're so caught up in impressing people, they've become hypocrites. They've lost their integrity. They're supposed to be bringing glory to God, teaching and caring for his people, but instead they're using their position to glorify themselves. Verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and, and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and, and for a show make lengthy prayers. For a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. These religious leaders, they might appear all pious and holy, but appearances can be deceiving. And it's at that point in the last scene that Jesus sees something and he points out an example of how appearances can be deceiving. Uh, rich people are putting lots of money into the temple, but then a woman comes and puts in just a couple of cents. By external appearances, you would think it's the, the rich people being pleasing to God, but God sees deeper than external appearance. Chapter 21 and verse 1. Verse 1. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. God sees. God sees beyond the appearances. All right. Well, can you see what's here in our Bible reading from today? A little bit like Wesley in The Princess Bride, Jesus has to take on expert after expert. The legal experts try to trap him with a legal question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That the theological experts try to make him look like an idiot with another question about resurrection and marriage. But Jesus beats them all at their own game. He's wiser than the wisest. And then Jesus has questions and warnings of his own. These religious leaders, they've got too small a view of who the Messiah is. They're thinking earthly Messiah. They've forgotten, Psalm 110, that the picture is much bigger. It's a heavenly Messiah, and that is symptomatic of their whole outlook. They're all about impressing people rather than God. They're all about giving the appearance of piety and godliness. Ultimately, they're just serving themselves. Okay. Okay, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. Now, nearly always I try to just give one application from the big idea in the passage. I just, I can't do it today, I'm sorry. I reckon this passage has just lots and lots of really interesting and helpful and sometimes unique applications. And so today, I want us to think briefly about four. Okay, I'm sorry that's a lot. 
Sorry, that's, you know, if my wife gives me four things to remember at the shopping centre, I've got no chance without a proper list. Maybe write it down. Um, but they're all here in this passage. I, I don't want to leave any of them out. So here are four things that I think are important for us. Firstly, giving to Caesar. Okay, the, the importance of Christians being good citizens, paying their taxes and so on. Second, resurrection, the idea that, the, that, that there is no giving in marriage in heaven and, and what that means for who we are in, in, in essence. So um, giving to Caesar, resurrection. Thirdly, just this whole thing about the religious leaders being all about pleasing people rather than pleasing God. Okay, and then finally, I'll just think about how great Jesus is. So four things, giving to Caesar, resurrection, heavenly religion, and Jesus. Let's think about each one in turn. Point number one is giving to Caesar. Uh, the New Testament is clear about this. We should love God. We should seek first God's kingdom. We should put God before people. But Christians should also be good citizens. We benefit from our government. We benefit from the country that we live in. And we should be quick to abide by the laws of our land, quick to seek the good of our community, and quick to pay the taxes and the honour and respect that we owe. Let me give you one other New Testament example from Romans. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, not just because you get a fine or something, but also as a matter of conscience. We should believe that it's the right thing to do. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Reality is, we greatly benefit from the work of our government. I am very pleased that we have hospitals and schools and armies and all the other things that the government sought out. And we should, we should give the government our honour and our respect, even if we didn't vote for them, even if we disagree with them. And friends, can I say, this is even true in the world of social media. Who would have thought that the Bible would have an impact on social media? Disrespect of our leaders is endemic on social media. But it is displeasing to God. If you are doing it, if you're getting in with the sniping and the awfulness that people say about politicians, it's time to stop. We should honour and respect those who govern us. If we disagree, we disagree with courtesy and we disagree with humility because we perhaps don't know everything about how the government should run the country. We should also obey the law. Can I say, and I'm saying this to myself, including the laws of the road. Not just because you might get a fine or lose some points, but it's a matter of conscience. Unless the law is asking us to sin against God, we should obey the law. And we should pay our taxes. I'm sure we all joyfully do this every year. Don't cheat. Pay what you owe. As Christians, we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We should give to God what is God's all of our lives. We should seek first his kingdom, but Jesus makes it clear here. We should also give to Caesar what is Caesar's. All right, that's point number one. Sorry, it's brief. We could go on, but I've got four of them, remember? Okay, point number one, giving to Caesar. Point two is about resurrection. Uh, Jesus says once we're resurrected, we're not going to die anymore. There'll be no more 
children being born, death will be finished, and so there will be no marriage. Now, of course, our marriages, um, our marriages end in death. That's what we promise, isn't it? Um, I promise to be your husband for as long as we both live, or until death parts us, or something like that. And then in heaven, there will be no marriage. I reckon it's a very important thing to keep in mind, because it means this, marriage and family and sex are not essential to our identity. Now, of course, they form part of our identity. The reality is I'm a husband and I'm a father, and that's not going to be completely erased in heaven. I will still be the man who was the husband of Kamalina on earth in heaven. I'll still be the man who was the father of Joel and Daniel and Joshua and Bianca and God willing, a couple of unborn children that we lost in heaven. But that's not essential to my identity. Because in heaven, who will we be? It's there in verse 36. Who will we be in heaven? Can you see it there in verse 36? Jesus says we will be God's children. That's the essence of who we are. That's the the most important relationship that defines us being children of God. Uh, The most important story, narrative of our lives is our union with Christ. We are sinners saved and forgiven by Jesus and adopted as God's children, whether we are married or single, whether we have lots of sex or no sex. It doesn't change the essence of who we are in Christ. It doesn't change our essential story. United to Christ in his death and resurrection, we are children of God. It's very important that we get this. Because in our modern culture, sex is considered to be an essential part of our identity. And you hear this over and over again. You need to look inside yourself, determine whether you are, in fact, what gender you are and what sexuality you have and so on. You have to look inside and somewhere apparently you're going to find that. And then, to be authentically human, you need to express that. You need to be that. If we can't express our sexuality, we're somehow repressed and less than authentically human. It's not true. It's not the essence of who we are. The essence of who we are is God's children in Christ, not whether we're male or female or homosexual or heterosexual or whatever else. Or in our church culture, in our church culture, family can easily become an essential part of our identity. Now, in church, we want to rightly encourage people to be faithful and godly in their marriage. We want to rightly encourage people to be faithful and godly as parents. But there's a real danger The danger is we can slip into an assumption that without marriage and children, we're living less than fully human, authentic lives. I hear this over and over again. I heard it just at a wedding just recently uh, about how they have completed each other and how now finally they've found the fulfillment of each other. That's nice and romantic and lovely. It's also nonsense. Here in Luke, we learn this very important lesson. If you are relying on Jesus, you are fully, authentically a child of God. Whether you are single or married, whether you have children or don't have children, in Christ, you are completely who you were made to be. It's not the same as in the Old Testament where we needed to... Um, It wasn't good for the man to be alone in order to fulfill God's plan to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The earth is subdued under Christ. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. There is now 
No incompletion in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are who you were made to be. You are who you were saved to be, and you are who you will be at the resurrection and into eternity. You know, we often talk about how marriage points forward to the marriage of Jesus and the church. And that's true. Something I've preached. It's true. It's good. A marriage points forward to heaven, to the relationship of Jesus and his church and the eternal marriage. But we often, what we often forget is that the lives of single Christians also point us forward. As single people, here and now, find their satisfaction and fulfilment and completion in Christ, they're a picture of what we will all be like when we are resurrected and transformed. Okay, giving to Caesar, resurrection. Point number three is this. These Jewish leaders... Jewish religious leaders, they're focused on earth rather than heaven, on people rather than God. It's an easy mistake for us to make as well, isn't it? I was talking to a group of uh, ministers the other day and uh, we were having a look at this little section in Luke's Gospel and talking about how easy it is as a minister to want everyone to love you and to try to be pleasing and to be uh, all on about um, putting on a face so that people think how religious you are and all the ministers are going, yeah, yeah, it's such a temptation, it's such a temptation, we all so easily fall. And then we looked at Jesus' words these men will be punished most severely. <laughs> and we went, whoa. But it's not just for religious leaders, is it? It's a big temptation for all of us, I think, isn't it? It's very easy for us to make our religion just a very human thing. It's very easy for us to become preoccupied with impressing people with how religious we are, with how godly we are. It's easy for us to put on a religious face, an outward appearance. You know, we, we've been screaming at each other and fighting all the way to church, and when we get to the church car park, there's that great miracle where suddenly everybody's smiley and nice. Jesus wants us to strive to please God, not people, and he sees through it all. Jesus wants us to look to heaven, not to earth, because earth doesn't last. And so we need to ask ourselves some questions. Who are you when no one's looking? Do you pray when no one is looking? Because the danger is we're like those leaders for a show, they make lengthy prayers. Do you pray when no one's looking? Do you serve and give and read the Bible and love Jesus when no one is looking? It's a good litmus test. They show if we're real, if we're genuine or not. They show whether we're striving to please God or whether we're really just on about impressing people. I should say, I think it's important for us as a church to try to create a culture of being real with each other. Now, I'm not saying that we should bore each other in excruciating detail of how miserable we are and how sinful we are and so on. Nobody's that interested. Um, but we shouldn't try to pretend to be better than we are. We shouldn't try to pretend that we've got it all together. And I think, look, I'm not on social media, so I can criticise away without actually knowing anything about it, but it seems to me on social media that everyone kind of puts on their best face. You know, and then everyone else goes, oh, I wish I had a life like that. That shouldn't be church. Should we just, just be real with each other? God sees through us anyway. It's him we need to strive to please. I think that's a better culture, don't you? 
All right, giving to Caesar, resurrection, heavenly religion brings us to our final point. We will finish with this, Jesus himself. Our friends, I don't want to sound trite, but isn't Jesus excellent? Like Wesley in Princess Bride, he's more expert than the experts. Well, you see these religious leaders, I mean, last week with their money grubbing in the temple and then with their, oh, we're worried about what the people think and we can't say this and we can't say that. And then, and then this week with their coming up, we're trying to trap Jesus and all their lies and their flattery and their duplicity and Jesus is just total integrity, total control, total calmness, total authority as he does what? Heads to the cross to die for you and me. And you look at the things he's just been teaching today. I mean, this is genius stuff. Giving to Caesar, the, the nature of the resurrection, genuine heavenly religion. These are brilliant, life-transforming ideas. And Jesus himself, he so beautifully practices what he preaches as he faithfully serves God all the way to the cross. Friends, I hope this is something you're seeing over and over again in Luke's gospel, because this is what he's written it for. It is why he's written his gospel, so we can be, do you remember, more certain of the things that we've learned about Jesus. I hope you're seeing how excellent Jesus is. And I hope uh, you're becoming more and more certain that he's true. I hope you're becoming more and more certain that, that he is the one to live for. Let's pray, and then we'll have some questions. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his brilliant wisdom as he just knocks down the experts in their expertise. We thank you for his brilliant integrity, we thank you for his brilliant love for us as he went to the cross in our place to bear our sin so that we might be children of God in the new heaven and earth. Lord, you're incredibly kind to us. We want to say thank you so much for Jesus. We pray that you would strengthen us to live for him and to serve him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.